Shalom Aleichem, and welcome back to Sefer Maccabim. Last time, we learned about the Maccabim's miraculous victories at Emmas and Betzer, how they marched forth to liberate Yerushalayim, while Lysias is up north in Antioch reorganizing the Seleucid army, and how the Maccabim purified and rededicated the Beit HaMikdash in an eight-day ceremony. By now, news of this Jewish victory has reached the non-Jewish nations all around. How do you think they feel when they hear the Jews have reclaimed their holy city? Do you think they're happy and want to congratulate us? Of course not! Who likes it when Jews are successful? They immediately set about trying to rise up against us and undo our victory. In fact, we see this pattern unfolding across literally the entire span of Jewish history. How the whole world always gets unhappy and angry at Jewish success and tries to undo it. Except perhaps in the days of Shlomo HaMelech. Now let me explain. In the book, A Tzaddik in Our Time, the biography of Rabbi Arya Levine, the Tzaddik of Yerushalayim, the following incident is recounted. The day after Yerushalayim was liberated in 1967, two members of Knesset visited Rabbi Arya and greeted him. Mazel tov! The Kotel HaMaravi is in our hands! When the rejoicing died down, Rabbi Arya said, Now we have to pray for heaven's mercy. The members of Knesset asked him, Why? And he replied, In Pashat Lech Lecha, the Torah tells of a brilliant war fought and won by Avraham Avinu, who at that time was called Avram. Four kings had won a battle against five and had taken captive Avram's nephew, Lot. With merely 318 men, Avram attacked the four kings and defeated them and set his nephew free. Now, what do we read right after that? After these things, the word of Hashem came to Avram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, I am your shield. Now, asks Rav Aryeh, why did Avram need this assurance, not before he went out to battle, but after the stunning victory? The answer, he says, is simple. After so resounding and astounding a triumph in battle, Avram was certain that the nations all around him would not take it quietly. They would be stirred to their roots and would probably unite against him to undo his victory. So he needed the Almighty's assurance. It's the same today, says Rav Aryeh. The nations will not accept Israel's victory calmly. They will not consent to have the holy sites remain in our custody. Now, like Avram, we need heaven's mercy more than ever. Sure enough, shortly after the Six-Day War, the pressure by the great powers of the world immediately began for Israel to withdraw from the territories liberated in the war. As Shmuel Tamir, one of the members of Knesset who visited Rav Aryeh, later recounted, Rav Aryeh did indeed have a clearer, more sober view in political matters than we did. In short, no one likes a Jewish victory, and it seems the other nations will do anything to either prevent us from achieving them or to undo them once they have occurred. Even the nations Moab and Midian, who were sworn enemies, united to hire Bilam ben Peor to curse us after Moshe defeated the giant Sichan and Og. There's nothing quite like hatred of Jews to bring enemies together. Anyway, the Hanukkah story is no exception to this rule. The non-Jewish nations are eager to crush the Jews. But while they can't reach Yehuda and his men in Judea itself, fortunately for them, there are nearby targets who are a lot more reachable and a whole lot less powerful. I'm talking about the Diaspora Jews who never returned to Eretz Israel when Ezra HaSofer sent out the call to return after our exile in Babel. Throughout the entire era of the Second Beit HaMikdash, there are unfortunately many Jews living outside the land of Israel, in countries like Syria, Egypt and Babel itself in the old Persian Empire. And combine Yehuda's miraculous victories in Judea with the seething anti-Semitism of the surrounding nations, and life for a diaspora Jew quickly becomes extremely dangerous. 
as the non-Jewish nations turn on their Jewish populations and start killing and destroying them. One of these countries who turn on their Jewish population is Gilad, which is located east of the Jordan River. The non-Jews gather together to slay all the Jewish residents, and the Jews living there are forced to barricade themselves in a fortress. They then send a message to Yehuda HaMakkabi, pleading, Our non-Jewish neighbours have raised an army against us, being led by a general named Timotheus. We are trapped in this tower in Gilad, and the army is laying siege to it and preparing to come in and slaughter us. They have already slain a thousand Jewish men and carried the wives and children away into captivity. Please come and save those of us who are left before it's too late. Yehuda has not yet finished reading these letters when messengers with torn garments arrive from the Galil, the mountainous region north of Judea where Jews and Gentiles live side by side. These messengers bear the news that the Gentiles living in Acre and Tyre and Sidon and the entire Galil are all marching south to destroy us. Yehuda, who prior to this was busy fighting battles against other nearby enemy nations, including Edom and Ammon, is now faced with two pressing matters at once. Firstly, he has to go east to rescue the besieged Jews in Gilad. But on the other hand, he also has to protect Judea from the swarm of Gentiles descending on the country from the north. He decides to split his army up and tells Shimon Hatasi, his older brother, you take 3,000 men and head north to fight the army coming from the Galil. I, together with our youngest brother Yonatan, will take 8,000 men and head east to save the Jews of Gilad. Although the text so far has only really mentioned Yehuda as leading the Jews into battle, all five sons of Matityahu are not only Tamili Chachamim, but also outstanding warriors, and more than worthy of commanding the Jewish soldiers in battle. As the Maccabean revolt progresses, we will see Yehuda's other brothers take a much greater role in commanding the Jewish forces. So Shimon marches north with his troops, Yehuda and Yonatan march east with theirs, and in the meantime, Yehuda appoints two Jewish commanders, named Yosef ben Zechariah and Azariah, with strict instructions to watch over the people in Judea and not to make war against the Greeks until they get back. So Shimon arrives in the Galil and fights many successful battles against the Goyim there. He and his men kill around 3,000 of them, and the remainder flee into Akko and shut the gates behind them, because Akko, on the northern Israeli coast, at that time was a walled city. And another significant event in our story is going to take place later at this very same spot, at the gateway to the city. Meanwhile, Yehuda and Yonatan, with their men, march east into the Gilad, and they've crossed the Jordan River and have been journeying into the desert for three days. Then they meet a people known as the Nabataeans. The Nabataeans were a Semitic people who lived in and around the Arabian desert for around a thousand years, from around the height of the Persian Empire until the advent of Islam. They are on good terms with the Maccabees, they speak peacefully with them, and they inform Yehuda and Yonatan and their men of the dire situation the Jews of Gilad are in, how they've been forced to barricade themselves in various fortresses in the different cities across the region, and how the Goyim are planning to break down the fortresses and massacre all the trapped Jews in a single day, in fact, tomorrow. Yehuda sees he has no time to lose, and immediately embarks on a campaign to destroy the cities of Gilad and save the Jews from the fortresses. First, he conquers a city named Botsor, and upon approaching the fortress, he sees men bringing ladders and battering rams and the like to break into the fortress and slay the Jews inside. The Maccabim blow their chauffeurs, cry out to Hashem, and lunge straight into battle. Now don't forget, the reputation of Yehuda and his army has spread worldwide, and when Timotheus and his army see just who it is that's coming to fight them, they realize, oh shoot, it's the Maccabee, and start running for their lives. Naturally, Yehuda does not simply allow them to waltz off like that. 
and together he and his men kill around 8,000 of Timotheus's army. Then Yehuda goes on to conquer the city of Mitzpah and all the remaining cities in the Gilad. Timotheus gathers a much larger army to fight the Jews. He even goes as far as to hire the local Arabians to swell his forces. They camp against the Jews on the opposite side of a river, and Timotheus addresses his troops. If when Yehuda gets here, he is afraid to cross over the river to fight us, then that's a sign he's afraid of us, and we can cross the river and be confident of smashing him. But if he crosses over to us without fear, then we're all dead. Well, he doesn't use that choice of words exactly, but you get the idea. What Timotheus doesn't know, however, is that Yehuda had sent spies into his camp, who hear everything he has to say, now return to Yehuda and tell him exactly Timotheus's words. So Yehuda knows exactly what to do. And when the Jewish army approached the river, Yehuda crosses over first and all his men after him. Obeying their captain's words, the soldiers of Timotheus lose heart, drop their weapons and flee the battlefield to a pagan temple in a place called Karanaim. However, the Maccabim find them there and burn the temple along with all those taking refuge inside it. It's another set of miraculous victories for Yehuda and his men in which they manage to save every single one of the besieged Jews in Gilad. What happens to them? The Maccabim know what happened 200 years ago in Persia, where even though Diaspora Jewry is spared from complete annihilation by a hair's breadth, most of them don't learn their lesson and continue living outside the land. Yehuda and his men are not going to let the Jews of Gilad make the same mistake. They bring the Jews from Gilad back with them to be settled in Judea, as they begin the long trek home. On the way back, they come to a great fortified city named Ephron. This city is so big, they can't actually travel left or right around it. They need to pass through the middle. But the inhabitants of Ephron will not let them enter, shutting them out and barricading the gates with stones. Yehuda sends a message to them, saying, Let us pass through your city, and not one of us shall do you any harm. We will only pass through on foot. But to no avail, the inhabitants refuse to open up the gates for them. Does this sound familiar? You might remember that more than a thousand years previously, when Bnei Yisrael are in our last year in the Sinai wilderness and approaching Eretz Yisrael, Bamidbar chapter 20 recounts how Moshe Rabbeinu sends emissaries to the king of Edom requesting permission for Bnei Yisrael to pass through their land on the way to Eretz Yisrael, even offering to pay for any food or drink they might consume on the way. However, the king of Edom not only refuses, but sends out his army to attack the people. The similarities between these events, however, aren't perfect because when Bnei Yisrael are not allowed to enter Edom, they are forced to turn away and find another route, because Hashem gave Edom to Esau's descendants until the days of Mashiach. Yehuda, however, is under no such restriction, and when the people of Ephron refuse to cooperate, the Maccabim assault the city gates for a full day and night until they are able to break into the city. Once inside, they slay all males with the sword, take the spoils they find there, and march straight through the city over the corpses of the inhabitants who refuse to let them in. Once past the city, they face a long trek across the desert, until they arrive at Bet Shan. But Yehuda never stops encouraging his people the entire way, until they arrive safely back within the borders of Judea, where the local Jews joyously flock to him to welcome them back. So they all go up to the Beit Migdash in joy and gladness, and offer karbonats to express thanks to Hashem, for they rescued every single surviving Jew in Gilad, and not one Jewish soldier was killed. What a miracle! Now, earlier on, I mentioned how Yehuda appointed the Jewish commanders Yosef ben Zechariah and Azariah to keep watch over Judea while they were away. However, the text tells us how when Yehuda and Shimon were away fighting their battles, word of their victories filters back into Judea. And these two commanders, Yosef and Azariah, 
hear about their incredible successes in battle. Inspired, they decide to go out to battle themselves against the Goyim still living nearby and earn a great reputation for themselves too. However, in doing so, they are violating Yehuda's orders because he specifically commanded them to look after Judea and not to fight any battles until they return. Yosef and Azariah violate his orders and lead some of the Jewish men to Yavna, a city on the coast outside Judea proper where many non-Jews live. Unbeknown to them, the Seleucid general Gorgias is in the city and when the Jewish army approaches, he leads a number of his soldiers out of the city to fight them. Shocked, Yosef and Zechariah and Azariah turn to run, but Gorgias pursues them across the plain as far as the borders of Judea, where the mountains begin, and Gorgias' mercenaries succeed in killing around 2,000 Jews. It's a terrible and needless loss, just because they didn't follow the Maccabees' orders. The final verses of the chapter describe how, after returning to Judea, Yehuda leads his men on a few more conquests, including against the descendants of Esav in Hebron and against the Pelishtim in Ashdod where he pulls down their altars and burns their idols with fire. This concludes chapter 5, in which some of the main things we saw were a dramatic upswing in anti-Semitism following the liberation of Yerushalayim, Yehuda's miraculous campaign to save the trapped Jews of Gilad, and the reckless excursion of Yosef and Zechariah and Azariah, the Jewish generals. We'll resume next time with chapter 6, in which we find out what Antiochus Epiphanes has been up to all this time, and what happens when the Seleucids come against the Jews with a new weapon, the war elephant.